Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. On today's episode of the show, we have a very important, very disturbing subject to discuss. The Chinese government's state-run boarding schools in Tibet, which have separated over one million Tibetan children from their families, language, and culture. These schools teach in the Chinese language with a curriculum geared toward Chinese subjects. They target the most vulnerable, impressionable minds in Tibet and seek to transform them from ordinary Tibetan children into loyal, unquestioning followers of the CCP. Not only do these schools threaten to cement China's control over Tibet, but they also endanger the continuity of the Tibetan way of life from one generation to the next. Now, in response to these horrific boarding schools, the U.S. government has placed visa sanctions on Chinese officials involved, while several governments and UN bodies have called for the schools to close. But more needs to be done. On today's episode of Tibet Talks, our ICT president, Tencho Gatso, will speak with a leading activist who's been at the forefront of raising global awareness about China's boarding schools in Tibet. But first, I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Tenchala for a discussion about everything happening here at ICT and in the world of Tibet advocacy. Let's take a listen to that now. Tancho, Tashi Delay, how are you? Good. Ashwin, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Happy holidays. Thank you. So I'm speaking to you now the same week that President Biden met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping here in the United States at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. The White House said afterward that President Biden raised Tibet with President Xi although the White House statement kind of just made a passing reference to Tibet. I was curious to know, you know as ICT's president, what's your response to the biden Xi meeting? Yes, yeah, so uh, as you said, uh, the White House uh, statement um, sh- uh, said that, that uh, Tibet was discussed. We as ICT had written to President Biden ahead. We also had a member campaign, making sure members' voices also get to the president. Uh, it's U.S. policy mandated by the Tibet Policy and Support Act that the United States raise mm-hmm. Tibet and raise the need for dialogue. And not only that, um, in this time we see for Tibetans um, a nonviolent, peaceful struggle that has been ongoing for 60 years. Um, it's invaluable when Western uh, governments, especially the United States, raises Tibet. It sends a message to Tibetans inside Tibet that um, their cause is not lost and that their voices are being raised and heard. So that's why um, we raise our voices uh, ahead of that every time. Just before she came to the United States, China's state council released a new white paper called CPC, uh, Communist Party of China, Policies and the Governance of Shizong in the New Area approach and achievements. So Shizong is a Chinese word that the Chinese government is now increasingly using to describe Tibet. What should our audience know about this white paper? 
So this white paper, it just uh, reiterates uh, China's policy on Tibet. There is uh, nothing new in it. It, it. it just states what they're doing. It doesn't um, even talk about the colonial boarding schools there are. It doesn't talk about the relocation. It talks about how great Tibet is and how happy Tibetans are. And this is what, the China, what China's policy is. Um, so there's nothing new in it, um, and you're right, they're increasingly um, using Shizang, and that's the policy to erase the word Tibet and use Shizang, which means uh, Western Treasure House, and a very intensified sinification is ongoing in mm. Tibetan areas. Mm. Yeah, and as we as we stated um, on social media, Tibet must remain mm -hmm. Tibet, right? On Shizong, Tibet must remain Tibet. On a brighter note, this week you uh, this week here in Washington, you also got to attend uh, NED, the National Endowment for Democracies, 40th anniversary presentation of its annual Democracy Awards and Democracy Service Medals. And for this special 40th anniversary celebration, there was actually a Tibetan Award winner. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I was privileged to attend. It was a wonderful celebration mm -hmm. of NED's achievements over um, past 40 years. And uh, um, we've had the privilege to work with them on um, a number of projects as well. And um, a Tibetan activist, Golok Jingmi, he is the person who, uh, along with Tundu Pongchen, mm -hmm. made a film called Leaving Fear Behind, just ahead of the 2008 Olympic Games which uh, interviewed over 108 Tibetans about what their thoughts are about the Dalai Lama, about the uh, then Olympic Games. And um, it was released after that. It was smuggled out of Tibet and released. And both the filmmaker, uh, two filmmakers, Tundup and Kolok Jingmi, they were both arrested mm. and uh, imprisoned. And they both escaped out after. So Kolok Jingmi was there. Uh, to uh, get an award on behalf of individuals who express uh, courage uh, in the face of hardship and authoritarian rules. So mm. he was there to get that award and I was privileged to sit with him and um, see him receive that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Very courageous man. It's great to see him honored that mm. way. One final question for you here, Tencho. Mm -hmm. Speaking to you this week here um, in Washington, just recently, you actually just got back from another trip to India, mm -hmm. and you were there with some of our other ICT leaders. Can you tell us what you all what you all did while you were over there? Yes, it was a, a brief visit, but we were really lucky that um, the, all the heads of our offices could be there together. We had um, Kai Müller from mm -hmm. German Berlin office, uh, Ong Butetong from uh, Amsterdam office, mm -hmm. And Pujan Sirila, who is head of our research and monitoring, all four of us there. And it also coincided that our chairman of the um, board, Mr. Richard Gere, was mm -hmm. there along with Tempat uh, Sirila, a board mm -hmm. member who's based there in Dharamsala. So five of us uh, had a wonderful audience with mm -hmm. His Holiness. We were able to apprise him of uh, some of our work and also our plans going forward. Um, we also had meetings with um, Sikong Pempatsiring, the president of the Central Tibetan Administration, um, the Tibetan Parliament in exile, um, the, uh, the Minister for Department of Information and International Relations. Um, the goal is that ICT works even more coordinated 
with the efforts of the Tibetan Exile Administration and uh, make sure the work we're doing is strategic and um, uh, intentional um, and uh, uh, coordinated closely with what uh, efforts Dharamsala is making. So I think uh, mm. it was very good um, that we could be there all together. Yeah. I know you also got a little bit of time to see some family and some other things in India as well, so it must have been a nice trip. Yes, very yeah. hectic, um, <laughs> yeah. but I enjoyed it, a little bit of family time as well as work time, so combination. Yeah. Well, well, glad to have you back, and uh, thank you so much, Tancho, for uh, this discussion. Thank you, Ashwin. My thanks again to Tenchala for that conversation. About two years ago, Tibet Action Institute published a groundbreaking report titled Separated from Their Families, Hidden from the World, China's Vast System of Colonial Boarding Schools Inside Tibet. We'll make sure to share the link to where you can find the report. Now that report helped get us to where we are today, where more and more people are expressing concern and condemnation over China's boarding schools in Tibet. Recently, Tenchala also had the opportunity to speak with the director of Tibet Action Institute, a longtime well-known Tibet activist named Vaden Tetong. Without further ado, let's listen to their conversation now. Hello, Tenchala. So good to see you. Hi, Tenchala, you too. Thank you for making time to join us on this Tibet talk. It's been something we've been trying to put on the calendar a long time, and I'm glad to have you finally here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I think, I think Adela, you're known to all of us, but maybe not to all of our viewers. So maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about what you are doing now. You are co-founder and director of the Tibet Action Institute can you tell us a little bit about the Tibet Action Institute and what you do? Sure, yes. So, yeah, we, Tibet Action came out of, well, came out of Students for a Free Tibet and our experience, like a whole collective of us, our experience through the years working with SFT and then culminating in and around the Olympics, the first Beijing Olympics in 2008, but also, you know, what we experienced through the March 2008, that whole spring into summer uprising. And what we saw at that time as a need, uh, the need for the opportunity, uh, we had to expand our activism and our training um, that had really, we'd done so many years with outside Tibet, Tibetans, students, sort of uh, global activism. And we saw that 2008 really changed the game, that Tibetans inside Tibet so clearly were connected and communicating and telling their own story in a way like never before from inside. And so there was uh, obviously in this new connected world with communications technology and whatnot, we felt there was a need for Tibetans and supporters to be trained uh, to understand digital security threats. 2008 was, just to put in context, was when the widespread protests across the Tibetan Yeah, yeah exactly. And so where we you know, were previously in our, all of us Tibetans know how long it used to take information to come out of Tibet 
or how second, third, fourth hand we would get news and info. And I think 2008 showed us that anything was possible really with mobile phones and connectivity and internet and um, people inside using these new technologies. And so Tibet Action was about technology and training and strategic nonviolence for Tibetans. So really targeting our our own people in exile um, and also in Tibet, like wherever possible to provide information and knowledge in Tibetan training wherever possible that could help people stay safer online or in their communications and also understand that nonviolence is more, you know, that, that there's a strategic nonviolence kind of peaceful war one can wage, you know, that we saw people inside using incredible tactics of nonviolence and strategies that we could see were effective against um, the Chinese occupation. And we wanted to really dig into that. So that's what Tibet action, that's where we came from. And still our focus is mostly around technology and training. And yeah, it's been already. That kind of training is so important because then people don't know, but um, Tibetan is one of the phones that is available on Apple iPhones and Tibetans communicate really well through Tibetan language uh, digitally. That work and education um, becomes even uh, more important. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, and there's more possible, I think, than people realize. You know, of course, China has very strict control, surveillance, and things have really changed since 2008-9 for sure. But but there's just more possible, and trends yes, are and living was, and doing. I was in Dharamsala recently, where Malam AI released the Tibetan AI uh, programs and things. So it's quite incredible what they're doing. Um, also, there for absolutely uh, digitally. We can go on about that, but today I want to speak with, to you about um, Tibet Action Institute's groundbreaking report on the boarding school system. The um, report titled Separated from Their Families, Hidden from the World, China's Vast System of Colonial Boarding Schools Inside Tibet was released December 2021. Can you give us an overview of the report. Most of us, our viewers, would be familiar with pieces of it here and there, but we've never had you um, give a, you know, a, a presentation, just an overview of the report itself. Sure, yeah. You know, we, we were hearing at the time leading up to writing the report, we never really meant to write a report, but we, mm. we were just hearing reports from on the ground, as you do in the Tibetan world, anecdotally, that people were talking about you know, having to send children away, especially very young children, we were hearing four and five-year-olds to boarding school. And of course, the crackdown on Tibetan language, medium instruction in the schools, especially in, you know, primary school and uh, middle school places where you used to be able to learn in Tibetan. And so we were actually looking into a language, potential language rights campaign. And, and, and then it just became clear one Tibetan Researcher estimated 900,000 Tibetan kids in boarding schools. And that just shocked me and some of us into if this is true. And of course, the lockdown and blackout, information blackout on Tibet and transnational repression and all of it makes it very hard to know what is the full, complete picture inside Tibet. But we knew if that number was anywhere near true, uh, it would mean 
six, seven, now we know more than seven million Tibetans, um, that's a huge percentage of the population and potentially all of our children in boarding schools, which means in the care of the state um, and not living with families. And so we started to go down this road of trying to look into it. And the more we dug and tried to piece together the picture, we actually came to exactly that number almost, um, 800 to 900,000 Tibetan children at least between the ages of six to 18 living in state-run a state-run boarding school system, residential school system. And that represents almost 80%. That's all of Tibet, not just what China calls Tibet or Western and Central Tibet, but all of historical Tibet, the entire Tibetan plateau, all areas, even China considers, you know, Tibetan prefectures or designated Tibetan areas. And it's just an astoundingly high number. And so three out of every four children and that we knew that our numbers were also, we, we really tried to err on the safe side. So um, the, this picture, the, the up-to-date picture would probably be even worse than it is. But that number, so not only are these children, Tibetan children in Tibet living uh, separated from families and parents who mostly have no choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they have to send these kids because it's compulsory education, because there aren't any alternatives, hardly at all anymore. I mean, there's a lim- there have been a limited number of private schools and Tibetan run, say, private schools, monastery schools, but China has been shutting those down steadily. Yeah. And so Tibetans have no choice. And those who do try to resist are met with you know, strong arm tactics, threats, uh, you will lose the right to send your, you know, your child won't be able to enter the higher grades if you don't send them at these young ages, or uh, you will lose social welfare benefits, or really, you know, they may not be taking kids by gunpoint from their homes, but they don't have to, because they have such, the Chinese state has such incredible control over every aspect of Tibetan lives and livelihoods inside Tibet that makes them able just to compel people to send the kids. And then, of course, Tibetans want education for their children and a modern education. And they want them even to learn Mandarin, Chinese, but but not at the expense of Tibetan language and culture. And that's what's happening. So the schools are not just boarding schools like we might think of them in the rest of the world, but they really are under Xi Jinping, under these sort of new ethno-nationalistic policies that he's been leading, this drive sort of campaign um, of signification you know, across all areas, um, China, uh, the PRC controls. It's Mandarin medium instruction. So Chinese language is is the language of instruction. So all the courses are taught in Chinese. And Tibetan children may get one, maybe two, but seems like at least one Tibetan language class. But that's one class in a day when you have, you know, eight or 10 classes. And then when you're not living, these kids are not living at home and Buddhism or no religion is allowed in these schools, no practice. So you have Tibetan kids essentially cut off from, but for what the state allows, any real authentic expression of Tibetan language, culture, certainly Buddhism. And on top of that, 
a very serious, heavy political indoctrination program. So, you know, propaganda, their, their, their classes are really focused on like Xi Jinping thought and a lot of hours, even at the youngest ages is spent learning, you know, Chinese communist party, I, you know, the religion of the Chinese communist party, I would say. And um, even though they don't, think of it that way. And, and so, you know, it's like an identity transformation school in the worst possible way where Tibetans from a very, very young age are, are essentially the, the, the attempt is to turn them to replace their Tibetan identity with a Chinese one and a Chinese nationalist identity uh, at that, you know, and, and, and they're, and, they're most vulnerable at that age. Um, these young children. So Absolutely. What kind of impact has this been having on the families and Tibetan society? You know, the so I should say also the report did not include because we could find very little information about the hidden boarding preschool system. So this is just talking about six to 18 year olds. And even then, it, it fundamentally is changing the way that these children think and and it's having an impact in, we, we've definitely heard a lot of Tibetans talking about not just the language, so how Tibetan children are speaking to each other in Chinese now, kind of everywhere, even in places that they may not have in the past, uh, uh, at least as a sort of a language of communication between all the kids and siblings, but also that they're being sort of pulled away from the parents when even when they do go home, whether that's you know, on the weekend or more likely every two or three months or maybe even longer, they're just different because they're living in such a radically different environment than they would be in a multi-generational Tibetan home. So the values, if you can think of, can you think of a more opposite value system than this socialist Chinese Communist Party driven life? Whereas if we're home, I mean, even me growing up in Canada, I will have my, I had my father there or my relatives to all those formative years shape me and guide me in not to kill, you know, take the spider outside, don't stamp on it like my friends might in their home, you know, or just the value of life and, and all of these things that make us Tibetan beyond language, the obvious. These kids just don't have that exposure. And so it really is pulling them away from, in spite, you know, not, not their fault, pulling them away from their families. And it does create a lot of tension, I think, in the family. That's the other thing. You know, these kids are Tibetan and their parents are Tibetan, but their value system and their and social then, uh, different. connection with the, when the children lose their Tibetan language, when they're taken away so young, the parents mostly, especially the nomad parents, will not be speaking Chinese. No. And that's a part that I think really, I, I think because we talk about Tibet, it seems so far away for people and the situation obviously has been going on, the occupation and the repression for so long. It's hard for people to imagine how Tibetans still to this day speak Tibetan and are, you know, have Tibetan culture and Buddhist values and, you know, this strong sense of identity, despite all the pressure and the cultural revolution and the repression and the attacks over all these years, Tibetans really have maintained a strong, you know, core and base. And, and, and now, for the first time, 
we're really seeing like if you think of 80%, 90% is probably the number of all Tibetan children living in the care of the state and speaking Mandarin Chinese every single day away from their homes. It's like the first generation that's truly being influenced to such a deep level. It used to be primary schools at least had, had Tibetan instruction, mm -hmm. medium instruction. And back in the day, it used to be middle schools that were sent away and then slowly, slowly under Xi Jinping, I think the plan has been really to securitize and bring this education and training the young people to right. so-called love the motherland at a very early, uh, we quote, I could quote this Xi Jinping, a speech at a work forum that says planting the seeds of love for China in the heart of every young person. And it is really just straight out of the colonial playbook. It's exactly the, you know, maybe look different in this day and age, but residential, the residential school system in Canada, where I was born and raised, uh, the colonial the boarding schools here for um, Native Americans, Australia, you know, for Indigenous Aboriginal people, it is how, if you want to, back then they used to just be quite blatant about it and say, you know, we want to take the Indian out of the child, you know, we want to make them Christian and save them from themselves. And in the process of taking young children away from their families and their language and their culture and putting them, you know, raising them in these so-called schools, um, beyond the abuse and all of the things, awful, awful things we know that happen there, they really very effectively sort of uh, ripped the, them from their roots so that even when the children went home, there was a disconnect with the family. And there were, you know, lost culture and language and heritage that in a way you can never get back if it goes on for generations. And so... I think the Chinese government, you know, they clearly know exactly what they're doing and they have designed the entire sort of curriculums and the experience of boarding school. They, they, they had themselves have said in 2015 in the decision on ethnic education, they themselves said all children of so-called ethnic minorities should live in a school, grow up in a school, a boarding school, like they should, they should be the places that we raise ethnic minority children, so Tibetans, Uyghurs, Mongolians. Whereas the opposite is true for Chinese students. Mm -hmm. In 2012, there was a push back against boarding schools for rural Chinese students. And the state council, that very same state council said in 2012, actually, boarding schools should be in theory, especially for very young children, grade one, two, mm -hmm. three, uh, only, you know, we should always offer local school options unless it's like, you know, this very is for mainland China. For China itself. Mm. So this is a, you know, you have that in 2012. Mm. And then three years later, under Xi Jinping, you have this push to put all so-called minority children into boarding school. So we can see what they're doing. And it's very, very, very clear. And the report helped us get... A, the numbers and like the clear sense of how it all is working together. Cause of course that's what they obscure so well with the information blackout and the lockdown of Tibet is like the whole picture of what is happening. They, they it's very difficult to, to really clearly see and understand and reflect that with numbers. Um, and that's what the report is, has done. At this point, I want to show um, for our viewers 
a little video that um, you all had shared also that was shared on Chinese uh, social media. Mm -hmm. um, somebody who had been into a boarding school and was speaking to some of the now can you give us a little context of that video and we'll yeah we well. yeah so it is you know there's a lot of Chinese state propaganda that shows you life inside a boarding school mm -hmm. in Tibet but this was actually just uh, uh, someone on social media likely a Tibetan but those speaking Chinese uh, Mandarin went into a boarding school and and had this sort of exchange with some students in what looks like their their dorm area there's some bunk beds and it's just a back and forth very seemingly just very innocent and just an exchange with these kids about where they'd like to go and what they a little bit about them you know family or it's just what any tibetan can feel and i think what any person with a you know beating heart can f hear and see in their answers is that they're missing their families that they are, you know, their instinct is to say, we want to go to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, you know, that's, that's where they, that's for them, like an exciting place to go in the world. Um, but you can see how they're torn between what is their new Chinese identity and who they're supposed to be. And also just very honestly telling this person behind the camera, um, who we, you know, believe is Tibetan, how they feel about yeah living away from their being separated from their families you really you really get a sense of yeah just this the sadness that's underneath these sweet children just under the surface嗯，然后还有嗯，带他去音乐的时候，嗯，有些嗯，那个奶奶他们病得很重，还有医生也很少，嗯，然后，所以你就想要帮助他们，对不对？嗯，那我们也知道这里是寄宿制学校，对不对
really puts into perspective all that you've been saying. Adma, I want to also, could you tell us, um, you've been working, uh, this is not just um, information that you've been gaining from across the, um, the firewall, but you actually worked very closely with a researcher who has been on the ground and to many of those schools is an educationalist himself and understands the impact of this. So from listening to some of the ways he was describing also was very powerful. So can you share some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the first point that Dr. Gallo, who worked in the education system in Tibet for almost 30 years, the first point he always makes is, as long as China's been in Tibet, education in Tibet, it's been a colonial system. And there have been boarding schools for years. Now the difference is that all children, even as young as preschool, are in the school system, many of them, even four and five-year-olds now boarding, so living away from their families. And Tibetans don't have control over that system. So whatever efforts Tibetan academics like him and others in the education field inside Tibet have, have made over the years to try to keep some Tibetan content, or Tibetan students and professors and people have gone out and protested in the streets as recently as 20, 2009 and 10, mm -hmm. Or they, we want Tibetan medium instruction. We want a modern Tibetan language education. And then, of course, Chinese Mandarin in addition to that. But we live in Tibet. This is what we want. And what has happened is there's, you know, not only less and less and almost now no space for anything Tibetan in the curriculum itself, but there's this push to get all kids from the youngest ages caught up into this boarding school life which is to rip them from their roots, to isolate them from their families, and to have, you know, I just think of it as like the Chinese state, the CCP is raising all of our kids. That alone, you know, anybody who has even a cursory understanding of what's gone on in Tibet over the years knows something is very wrong with a system where 80% of children, Tibetan children, are in this care of the Chinese state for their entire childhoods and lives. And that the Chinese, you know, intention here is likely political as it has always been in every kind of policy that they roll out in Tibet through the generations. And this is not like the previous boarding school systems where you start in middle school or a little later. If you're that little, I have a seven-year-old, yes. grade two, mm -hmm. um, two almost four-year-olds. And I see how when we go away for the summer and they don't have a lot of Tibetan language exposure, how quickly their language mm -hmm. abilities will go down. And then we come back and when we're with our family and all of the people here around us, my husband's family that speak Tibetan, how, how it comes back up. Mm -hmm. And it, they're just at such risk at that young age of not losing yes. their ability to speak and communicate, but also their psychological foundation is being cemented, you know, age four to six is key to the establishment of one's psychological foundation. And that's when they're getting our kids now. Not all four to six-year-olds in Tibet or preschoolers have to go to boarding school, but kids in rural areas do. And that's the majority of Tibet. More yep. majority of Tibet is still rural. So this means the tiniest, littlest school-age children, babies. I mean, I think of my four-year-olds, you know, they're 
they're living away from their families at a time when they're most vulnerable. And of course, no one wants to send their kids away. No one wants to send their kids away. Nobody. Or which parent wants to send their kid away, right? Yes. So not only is this report out, but you have been campaigning and ongoing awareness building about this issue has led to several governments and even UN bodies taking note of this. Can you share how that uh, has been going and um, some of the challenges and some of the successes? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is, you know, for us, the real milestone was when the United Nations Special Rapporteurs um, issued a press statement about a communication that they had sent to China based on investigating the reports um, from Tibet, our report, and, you know, just looking into the issue. And I think, obviously, they found that these are Chinese government numbers, ultimately, that we used. I mean, the information is out there. It's just a matter of analyzing it, compiling it, and really trying to, you know, piece together the pieces to understand the full picture. And so the minute the UN said special rapporteurs issued this actually quite strong wording, language that that essentially said coercive boarding school system, you know, forced assimilation. Um, then later another UN committee, the, the one of the most important UN committees on economic, social, and cultural rights actually called for, after looking into this and even grilling Chinese officials, called for the, um, that the colonial boarding school, the system of boarding school in Tibet for Tibetan children, this forced assimilation policy be abolished, which, you know, is incredibly mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. And what it's done is it's given governments an opportunity to advocate because it's clear that it's not just us saying this it's not just a handful of anecdotes the un human rights experts independent experts themselves are saying this is happening and this is not only is it is it extremely destructive but it's wrong and now we have governments taking action so including um you know the canadian government actually a very strong parliamentary committee report uh, came out in Canada recommending the government of Canada take strong, decisive action. Uh, in the U.S., there, you know, we've had the unprecedented move for visa sanctions yes. on Chinese officials who are directly involved in this system. And I think for us, the key here is no one knew this was really a pro- this problem existed before, and so there was no need for a solution. And China was just sailing towards. Yeah, it's sort of the genocidal elimination of really? Tibetan identity and culture and language. Now it's like we've raised the alarm. The world knows governments are beginning to mobilize and take action. Of course, Beijing is denying it. And they've launched sort of a propaganda campaign, very slick, you know, media who just so happen to be allowed to walk into boarding schools and ask kids questions. Um, obviously not true, but that's what they make it look like. And they're denying, interestingly, they're not denying the numbers. They're more trying to justify that Tibet is such an extremely harsh environment and such a sparsely populated land that this is the only way to educate Tibetan children safely. They have to live in boarding schools, which is not true. I mean, there were village boarding schools. They may not have been, there were village schools. They may not have been perfect. But they shut them down and they didn't even bother to try to improve them. They've built roads everywhere. Tibet could not be 
better connected, you know, for the rapid deployment of security forces to even the remotest corners of the plateau. But for some reason, with all the money and power that China has in Tibet, they can't get school buses and build a locally accessible uh, school system, right? Like, so their, their, their defense so far is really to try to distract with other arguments like, look at these new schools, aren't the conditions, the facilities There's are being the perfect involved. Chinese way, and they had the recent uh, white paper that they produced where we noted they didn't mention anything about the schools. They just, I think they believe on some level, Xi Jinping's regime, that they can hoodwink the world on this one, and, and they really can't. And what we would say to anyone is, any place in the world, please tell us, where would it be okay to take 80 to 90% of all children starting at age four and away from their parents to live in boarding school? You know, no matter what level of development, no matter what that place looked like, it would not be okay. And it's not okay in Tibet. It shouldn't be happening. And China's uh, record in Tibet should alarm us and tell us all something very, very wrong is happening and it needs to be stopped. And I think that's at least where we are now is sort of on alert. And that's the key. Beijing wants the world with the lockdown, information blackout, transnational repression, surveillance. They just want Tibet to disappear. No one can talk about it if you don't know what's happening there. And I think this is the key now. We know. And now it's time for the world to take action. And I think people in the system in Tibet, like Dr. Gello, who've been fighting for years the battle to have Tibetan language, culture, identity reflected in education, I think we've put wind in their sails. You know, Xi Jinping won't last forever. These hardline policies can't last forever. And I think now we're sort of, we've sent a message into Tibet again that the world is watching and that yes, we're aware. These kind of government officials and UN bodies sending messages and visa sanctions from the government, these get through to yeah. Tibetans and they makes know. a difference. They know that they are being hurt. Um, but you're right. And, uh, and Xi Jinping has locked access to Tibet where everything is being hidden. Yeah, no, no, no story to tell, no issue, right? And that's people say to us, you know, how are things? It's so quiet. We don't hear anything from Tibet. That's all by design. It's all by design. And we can't, you know, we cannot. Um, I think we have a sort of an extra responsibility to be vigilant on and government's sort of media pushing harder to know what's happening in Tibet, not just sort of accepting, well, it's hard to get there. So, yes. you know, they don't make it easy. Well, work harder, try harder. You know, it's an obligation, I think, for the international community. I think very much so. And China's game has always been so hard that people, and many journalists used to at one point also say, oh, you know, Tibet, if you try and go to Tibet, you won't get visa, so there's no point in going. But we always, that's the game. That's what they want you to do. Right. But that's why it's important to try and access, especially in this time when the Tibetans inside Tibet are feeling the most pressure. Yeah. With Absolutely. all the things that they're dealing with across board. And because of this information um, blockage, those of us on the outside, we're not, uh, you know, able to tell the stories that need to be told as well. Right. 
And in this day and age, I mean, yeah, everyone's live tweeting whatever's happening outside their doors and windows, you know, or live streaming. And it's really very, you know, it should be a sign to people that Tibetans aren't doing that really for a reason, you know, and that's because they can't or because the consequences they face are so severe. And yeah, it behooves us to try harder. And I hope that's what this report will help governments see, and you know, not just the advocacy side, but this was all going on, you know, this, in a way, the system was being constructed right under all of our noses. And um, we should have known, we should have known, but, but now we do. And so even more of a, a call to action, you know, even more. And that's a message that goes out to the rest of the world also because of how China operates. Mm -hmm. They do it slowly, they do it quietly, they have their tentacles that stretch out everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really time for the world to be aware of what China is capable of when you look at what they're doing to the Tibetan children, you know who, what kind of a uh, entity you're dealing with. And in that regard, I think... Um, mm -hmm. Now is a time for us to all work together and raise these issues even more. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And it's our littlest, you know, it's our whole future that's on the line here. And it makes it even more yeah, urgent. And we have the China's UPR upcoming and you are all doing a lot of work towards that. I think you're working with Kai also, mm -hmm. uh, German mm -hmm. office, um, mm -hmm. uh, towards that. And maybe as we get to the end of the session, you can tell us a little bit about what you're looking, next steps, what you're doing and what you have in the works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, in a way we've just begun um, to get attention on the issue. You know, there's the opportunity to hold China accountable when they're being reviewed at the upcoming Universal Periodic Review at the United Nations. Um, so for governments to, we're pushing for governments, obviously, to, to raise this issue and also just to keep Tibet right up front to let Beijing know that, you know, Tibet's an issue still, and this is a very big problem, this particular issue. But I think more broadly looking forward, the boarding preschool system is really hidden very well, but it exists. We know it exists. And we will be looking to uh, put out a sort of a supplementary to the report because we, we just didn't have much to go on to include that information in the report. So we'll be looking to sort of um, get attention on this aspect of the system, which really is just, I mean, four to six-year-olds, you know, in a boarding school and, and all of rural Tibetan four to six-year-olds living in boarding school, it's, is it so obviously wrong? China knows it. And I think if we can expose it well and properly, it will very much help garner more action and attention. And our point now would be, you know, it's one thing to raise the issue, but let's make it costly. So what can we do? What can other governments do to join in and, you know, issue some kind of sanctions. There have to be consequences for the people involved in running these systems. And we would say for the intellectual architects as well. It's not just the security state, you know, it's not just the military and the police and some high level political leaders, you know, there are 
academics and intellectuals, people with international reputations they'd like to protect who are involved in, in this racing mm -hmm. Tibetan language in Tibet, mm -hmm. making, you know, trying to force the so-called common language, uh, Mandarin or Chinese, onto Tibetans. And it's a violation of Tibetan rights. Obviously, the whole system is a violation of Tibetan children's rights, family rights, parents' rights. And so for us, I think the next level should be really pushing for accountability and not letting this all be sort of a nameless, faceless Chinese government policy. Thank you, Ajunga. Thank you Thank for you. joining us today. Thank you for all the work um, you have been doing um, on this as well. And uh, no, thank you. Um, also to support um, your work and continue working together. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ladu. Thank you so much for joining us today on Tibet Talks. We'll be back next month with another episode. But until then, as we always say on the show, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you, and to the We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.